This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. One of the big challenges, I think, facing design and one of the things that we're just starting to see done well um, in the world and in Australia in particular is the idea of designing cities deliberately to be better for the people who live in them. Um, one of the great examples of that work in recent time and certainly in Australia was the 5,000 plus initiative done in Adelaide. Adelaide's postcode is 5,000. Um, done in Adelaide a few years back. Um, that's not the, the, the only topic uh, we're going to be talking about but we're very, very happy to have Sharon McKay, who was one of the uh, lead proponents of that project. She was in charge of strategy on that project. She's since gone on to do other things. She had done wonderful things before that, which is why she got involved in that project. Um, and we're very happy to have her kicking off our conference here today. So please join me in welcoming to the stage Sharon McKay. Thank you. Well, good morning and thanks for having me in Sydney. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, Jerry Seinfeld is currently doing an Australian-wide tour. Um, and he was in Adelaide last weekend and I wasn't at the, the show, but apparently, it, this made our front page, by the way, apparently um, he said, he entered the stage and he said, um, oh my God, do you know how long it's been since I've wanted to come to Adelaide? And then he said, yeah, no, never, just joking, <laughs> never really wanted to go to Adelaide. Um, it is true that um, the saying about Adelaide is that if you've, um, the only people that dislike Adelaide are people that have never been there or they've never left. So I guess that puts me in the category of quite liking it. I've been there for about 13 years. Um, I haven't always been from Adelaide, though, uh, and this morning I'm going to attempt to draw a line between panda bears, um, democracy, and the Happy Planet Index. Uh, so I think that it might be best to give you some context before I go into that about my work. Um, I don't have a real title. I've got no... I don't have an elevator pitch. Um, I, I um, freak out a little bit when I'm at the doctors and have to you know, fill in the occupation section, although I've taken to just writing not applicable at the moment, um, probably like a lot of people in the room. Um, and I recently had my partner introduce me to someone as kind of the Chandler, for those of you that know friends, um, you know, the person that we kind of know she goes to work every day, but we're not really sure exactly what she does. Um, so after the, in the next 40 minutes or so, I'm going to lift the lid a little bit on the work that I've been doing over the past um, few years, um, my experiences, a few missteps that I had, um, and certainly a few experiments, including the 5,000 plus project that um, Steve talked about or introduced. Um, and hopefully you'll find something in this um, presentation that will take you through the next few days and beyond. Uh, so originally I'm from Melbourne and I studied RMIT. I studied landscape architecture. I have always wanted to be a designer. I can't remember a time before um, that I've called myself a designer, in fact. Um, uh, I arrived in Vancouver in year 2000. I spent about the next seven years in Vancouver, um, by, a little bit by accident. Um, when I arrived, 
uh, well, not long after I arrived, I should say, uh, September 11th happened in 2001. Um, Vancouver already had the nickname Hongcouver when China went back, or when Hong Kong went back to the mainland um, under its governance. Um, and Canada had very uh, positive tax legislation. Uh, a lot of money flowed from the island straight back into Vancouver. So it was a very flashy, flashy city. So when um, September 11th happened, an extraordinary thing took place in Vancouver. Uh, uh, the, all that wealth and all that flashiness um, was not seen as desirable anymore. So people started um, uh, selling their yachts and selling their holiday homes and their fancy cars. And what they started doing was buying their neighbour's house. And they bought not one of their neighbour's houses, but two of their neighbour's houses. And they pulled down these perfectly beautiful mansions to create their own compound where they felt safe and they didn't have to go out and necessarily show their wealth outside of their own, their own compound. So for a landscape architect like me, it was amazing because I had the most extraordinary projects, including this one. Uh, this is Don Matrick's house. Um, he, at the time, was the um, owner and head of electronic arts, entertainment arts, sorry. Um, he, it was the biggest budget that I've ever worked on. My confidentiality agreement officially expired a couple of years ago, so I can tell you that it cost $27 million this is 20 years ago, and that's just for the landscape. That's not for the, uh, the house itself. It was great fun working for Don and his family. Um, uh, he demolished four houses over three properties, and it was a five-acre um, uh, um, compound in the end of it. But what, the reason why I'm telling you this is because that really, for me, was the first time that I understood design as more than just a problem-solving exercise. I think design's also a reflection of our society that we live in, um, and design holds a mirror to our values um, and who we are as people and communities. So when I returned to Australia, I found myself in Adelaide designing what I call my first uh, user experience. So this is Wang Wang behind the glass there. Uh, he's the first giant panda bear in the Southern Hemisphere. And he's also the first client that couldn't actually speak to me. We had to learn really quickly how he lived and what we needed to provide for him. And as a result of uh, travelling around the world to the seven exhibits in the, across the world at the time, um, I now know an awful lot about panda bears, probably too much. Not a very good dinner party guest. I do tend to talk about them. Um, we also had a problem with how do you get 6,000 people every hour up close and personal with Wang Wang. Um, so it was actually pretty easy in the end. You just put a lot of bamboo as close to the window as possible. You throw in a fake rock. This rock was refrigerated and it's refrigerated right through the, pu the public side so that um, uh, visitors can kind of experience what Wang Wang's experiencing on the other side of that, um, that window. So Wang Wang doesn't really care for people. He likes sleeping a lot. Uh, he likes bamboo even more. Um, he doesn't really care for Adelaide heat. Uh, he doesn't, also we discovered recently, he doesn't really care for female pandas, which is unfortunate because that's why we brought him to Australia. <laughs> um, he, um, he, 
Bamboo has very little nutritional value. It's a little bit like eucalyptus leaves. You really don't get much from it. And you have to eat a lot to get, get much energy. So he actually eats about 20 kilograms of bamboo a day. Um, what's unusual about um, uh, that scenario is that unlike humans, panda bears will put on the weight as they eat it. So they get up in the morning and throughout the day they eat and eat, and eat bamboo, they undo their top button, um, they have to lie down after a while and eventually they just have a, have a nap. And one of the best things about watching Funi, uh, Wang Wang is when he wakes up and he's still got bamboo on his stomach from when he fell asleep and he's really excited, like he really gets quite excited. So we had made that little rock to kind of be like a little bit of a daybed for him so that you could make sure that when he woke up that people could see the excitement on his face that there was still bamboo on his tummy. We also had to deal with having 6,000 people into Adelaide Zoo between 9am and 9.30, which was quite, quite a feat. We actually decided to treat it a little bit like an airport. Um, we realised that um, our, our design day, day assumption was that you know, people would probably come with a pram, which is you know, equivalent to a piece of luggage, or a wheelchair, or some, some you know, small, small people, or whatever it might be. Um, and the other design challenge was um, that the client, Adelaide Zoo, wanted the development to really f reflect their design, or their principles as being an um, organisation that cares about conservation. Um, the first move that we made was we removed the four-kilometre fence from around the zoo that was that, from a solid one and replaced it with a transparent one. So there was no, there's no longer a back of house at Adelaide Zoo. What was what was behind that fence is now is now um, on public display. Um, and we connected to the zoo, to the parklands in the city by convincing them, or working with them, I should say, to actually um, place a new entrance precinct where you would give back 2,000 square metres of their private land to public use. So before you have to pay to even get into the zoo. Um, and this enabled um, uh, the community to, or visitors to, or people who weren't even going to pay for the zoo to use that space and to understand what the zoo was about before they entered. Um, so effectively by removing their land, we were able to increase their footprint. And then we reflected those same principles in the built environment. And we allowed, you know, allowed us to do some really simple moves like the first green roof in Adelaide. Um, so that project really allowed me to start to think about um, the complexity of, of cities um, and the messy and often unintended consequences of those design decisions that, or development decisions that are made in isolation to other things. Um, uh, cities, though, have um, one thing in common. All cities have one thing in common, and that is who makes them. So... If you think about it, there's, there's obviously some decisions that are made very early on. Surveyors and planners might decide where a city goes. Our politicians might, uh, well, hopefully, they provide leadership and make decisions on behalf of its citizens. And developers take great risks with their money to actually see that development then happen. And because they're taking great risks, sometimes they're quite risk-adverse. But also we know that tactical and more community-based activities might actually be the catalyst for change as well. And then particularly in Adelaide, we have this um, uh, um, ability that sometimes the, that cities are made by the things that don't actually happen and don't take place. Um, we've got our fair share of NIMBYs in South Australia um, and there's a huge amount of people in South Australia that really want a better future but absolutely don't want anything to change. 
So the commonality is that all cities are made by people. And so then there's back to, back to Adelaide. For those that haven't been there, it's a beautiful city. It's uh, uh, designed by Colonel Light back in the 1830s. It was, um, I guess it's uh, um, considered to be one of the great planned metropolises. Um, it's a very efficient grid that's surrounded by beautiful parklands. Um, in fact, it's 690 hectares of parklands. That's about double the size of Central Park in New York City. Um, it's got five squares. As I said, it's got alternating grid, -like, grid roads running through it that were supposed to be really efficient um, for the car that wasn't well, has become very efficient for the car that wasn't invented at the time. Um, and of course, this was before the explosion of suburbs. But here's what it actually really looks like when I arrived in Adelaide. Um, looks much better in plan, I think. Um, it was unloved, it was unused, um, and, but importantly, it was protected from development by a very, very strong and powerful preservation lobby group. Over time, it became harder and harder and harder for this lobby group to actually protect the parklands from that increment, incremental development, you know, the little bits around the edges. And the reason why it became harder was because that no one really cared. It was a very small group of people representing a very small number of um, a small part of the community that actually wanted to keep it like this um, as an ideology. But here's the real reason that it was, it was like that. The parklands uh, fell wholly into the jurisdiction of Adelaide City Council. And Adelaide City Council had 100% responsibility for it. There are very few residents that live in the city of Adelaide. Most people live in the suburbs. Um, and per capita, every resident of the city of Adelaide actually had 500 square metres of land to use, but also they had 500 square metres of parklands to pay for through their rates. Those suburbs, the seven suburbs that were surrounding the parklands, had all care and no responsibility. They were the same distance away from the parklands and used it just as much, as, long, as well as visitors to South Australia, of course. So this is the unintended consequences of council jurisdictions. We spent a fair bit of time um, coming up with a mechanism that would allow those seven councils to collaborate with each other and to actually help fund and decide what should happen to the parklands. And what resulted was this. This is the same park that you saw before. The parklands are really now used. They're loved by, money, by many and they're protected from... By money. <laughs> cost a lot of money to do it. Um, protected from development. Um, I guess the irony is that in saving the parklands from development, we actually developed them. And we made sure that they were so loved that now people really don't want anything to happen to those beautiful parklands. So about this time, um, urban designers across Australia... Um, we're really starting to think about these challenges and the problems of this unintegrated um, approach. And it really was the genesis for the 5,000 plus project that um, was mentioned. Um, the federal government felt that Adelaide was a really great place to make mistakes. No one's really watching anyway. And that sort of second tier city is a great size. Everyone's really connected and can catalyse new things really quite quickly. Um, so they gave um, South Australia quite significant funding to underpin this project. It went for a couple of years. And what was interesting about it, it was absolutely an Australian first. It was a pilot project. Um, and it connected the three tiers of government, both in funding and the governance group. It was then designed to be replicable, of course, beyond um, Adelaide. 
So this is how we thought of the project. It was a fairly linear, pro you know, linear project that was going to end in a big bang and grow as, as we went. But in reality, this is how we kind of began to understand it over time. Just like cities, it was pretty messy and it was quite an interesting project and it was a, a, um, a little bit of a roller coaster for all of us. But what it intended to do really was this. It was intending to take the current way, still the current way that we tend to work, um, particularly in government, where you identify the issues Usually it's fairly reactive, whatever that might be. Identify the problems, then you come up with a solution, then you go out to the public and you announce it because it's all meant to be secret squirrel, can't talk about that. And then you hope that that consultation goes really well. If it doesn't, back you go to the start and um, you're in a bit of a trouble. Um, and we were looking at trying to create a new way of working together where it actually flipped that um, triangle on its head and say that what we're going to begin with is getting together the people who this particular project um, affects, look at um, the, the um, statistics and knowledge and information that surrounds it, understand context, identify all the issues, test different ideas, create some um, different options for maybe solving the problem, and then off you go, um, uh, develop some standards, and hopefully you've, you um, uh, are able to identify the winners in that, that particular project whatever it might be. So the project called forward a whole community of people that um, obviously existed, but all those different communities that are involved in designing or creating places. It was very much about values um, and about conversations. We had a huge number of, we had events, we had different activities, we had design labs, all sorts of, um, over, this is over two years. And it was that face-to-face -face recognition of those different groups that came together in the one space. So for the first time in Adelaide, we actually had you know, a banker, a designer, a coder, um, an artist in the same room talking about the same issue. Um, and recognising that everyone had to play a part to play in that future. And we often held these events in unused spaces um, or potential sp um, spaces. And the reason for that was to create that sort of negative, um, uh, or sorry, neutral creative um, uh, territory. As I mentioned, we hosted a lot of design labs through that period of time. And we really focused on not asking people to, to solve um, the problem, but identifying hunches that might be then trialled and tested um, without the fear of failure. This one's on safety in the West End um, of Adelaide. And of those six hunches, um, only one really came to fruition. And that was a small bar licensing, and which you know, came out of this design lab. And as a result, the West End is unrecognisable only about three or four years later. It is a completely different place. It's far more safe, it's far, much more safer for people. And we trialled all sorts of things. We put 100 portaloos down the street to prevent people um, you know, going up dark alleyways to relieve themselves. They tried lockout laws, that didn't work. They tried all different things. And in the end, um, it was this, this small hunch that actually got it across the line and changed the city, really. Um, so design has at its disposal a whole lot of different tools um, to communicate. Uh, and you've probably all watched Utopia and you're aware that everyone at the moment wants the fly-through, the finished product so they can see it exactly what it's going to look like. We actually found a benefit in not doing that. We found benefit in actually doing a hand sketch because a hand sketch actually says that it's incomplete. And it's much easier to go and have a conversation with stakeholders that they can have a part in if you're not talking about what it's going to look like at the end. But this is some ideas about how you might um, achieve some change. We searched for levers and incentives that might um, make sure that regulation wasn't always a negative one. 
and we celebrated the most unloved of all, the public servant. And this was the Computer Says Yes Award. And we gave it to this woman, Lara Tor, who does amazing work and will always say yes to you no matter what, you, what you're asking for. Um, we communicated statistics in a much clearer way and we addressed issues at hand without prescribing the solution. This was actually a surprise to a lot of people. We knew we had a lot of car parks, but we didn't quite realise that it was pretty much double, double others that we were comparing ourselves to. And what we did was we also worked with a lot of design practices. So instead of being done inside government, what we did was we actually employed a huge number, and pretty much every design practice in South Australia was involved in 5,000 plus at some point of time. And what we did is we deployed their knowledge about urban tactics and about what might, might make living better in Adelaide over a period of time. And I'll explain to you in a minute why that was really beneficial. So it was um, pretty aspirational and it was entirely speculative. Um, and this is it now. This has just won the South Australian Architecture Award, for Landscape Architecture Award in that same place. Um, and I want to share with you very quickly one of my favourite projects as part of the 5,000 plus um, uh, process. And this was called um, Patterns of Living. It was a really fun project. We employed a group of university students um, to explore a particular design challenge about ageing in place. And it was really useful because um, it was very non-threatening to the Department of Health who were actually currently in charge of this particular issue. We all know that um, cost it, the cost of aged care is, is huge compared to ageing in place. And so we wanted to look at different um, policies or processes that might allow um, uh, people to age in place and live well better. We took those poor students out to the community. It was pretty hostile, um, but they did extremely well. This community have been, you know, dealing with, this is the um, community that lives in the inner rim, so just outside the city. Their rates have gone up, you know, they've, they've probably lived in their house all their lives. It was, a, you know, a particularly difficult time for that, that particular cohort. Um, but what we learnt through that is that a few things that they actually valued. We learnt that they valued their street trees, their established street trees out the front of their properties. We also learnt that they really valued that heritage sandstone character in South Australian homes. Um, we came to understand also that a lot of them hoped to be able to help their grown children and their families to not have to move out to the suburbs. And they hoped to be able to do that. And what was available to them at the time was that they could possibly give up their house and let the family move in and, that, and they'd go off to the outer suburbs or to a smaller property to live in. So we saw this opportunity to um, densify without actually competing with that um, established heritage. Um, in South Australia, laneways are no longer used for waste management at all, so it really was leftover space, usually just used for um, um, access to garages. And this is the current condition, or was the current condition in um, those particular suburbs. Double carport at the back, probably single storey, not doing anything for anybody. So we looked at potential diversity with laneway housing types and discovered that there was actually 1,900 potential host sites just in the inner room alone. And so 1,900 is a lot in Adelaide. That's, that's dealing with about five years of population growth just in the, in the inner room. And more importantly, it was transforming that underutilised space into a potential um, new community that was sharing resources, sharing childcare, whatever it might be, and particularly um, supporting that intergenerational model, as well as costing a whole lot less for the government and the Department of Health. 
What was interesting about this is that Damien Madigan, who was a PhD architecture student at the time in Adelaide and was involved in this project, actually just won the New South Wales Missing in the Middle design competition. Um, uh, people who um, are city makers are always looking for or seeking out networks of people that have done and dealt with these sorts of issues before. So I was absolutely thrilled that Damien could take this knowledge from the 5,000 plus project in Adelaide and deploy it into a problem that Sydney's having right now. Um, so I could go on for hours about 5,000 plus, but instead I thought I would um, just show you this very short, it's only three minute video that kind of sums it all up for me. So many of you have been part of this journey over the last two years. So I'm going to ask you to turn in this direction, if you can, this side, a 180, for a very short snapshot of the last 12 months. I think one of the big challenges is the parklands are isolating the city centre and we need to intensify the city centre but also get it to work. You know, what are we going to do with the limited resources we have? Like a grown-up would, you know, limited budget, <laughs> where are we going to spend it? I guess the work in this exhibition is about the decisions we make for the future of Inner Adelaide in particular. We cannot be where we once were. None of us can. You have joined us here now to be part of a cultural continuum going back a long time. Not just white follow and black follow, but every follow. So engagement is critical. Engagement is something that can catalyse the many disparate thoughts of individuals in the community and bring them together into something meaningful, which can be developed for the benefit of the whole community. And that has been one of the tremendous outcomes of this 5,000 plus project. This might, well be, this might well be the beginning of something very significant, but we can't lose the momentum. This notion of uh, trying to um, lift standards in relation to design is something that we're looking to shoot through all sections of uh, our public policy. Though um, this is essentially a a concept about urban design, I think each of the, uh, the values that are at the heart of this process really point up um, very powerfully the way for the future for our state generally. So all that momentum that the Minister was just talking about was cut short. Because about three weeks after that video was made, uh, the commissioner lost his job for political reasons, and political reasons only. Um, it was quite a disheartening time for everybody, not just because we all lost our jobs, but because the momentum that the Premier was talking about, or sorry, that the Minister was talking about, and the way that the Premier was talking about design, we honestly felt that there was something, and all those people that we'd involved in the process, all those design practices, pretty much everyone in South Australia had something to do with 5,000 plus at some point in time. So we were accused of raising expectations. Um, this was a really fundamental clash with the Public Sector Act and the Code of Ethics. Legislation says that a member of the public sector must uphold the government of the day. And that's true of every Public Sector Act in Australia. It was very much our Yes Minister moment. Um, however, my... Um, my view remains that this is an extremely productive tension um, and one that designers are really well equipped to deal with and to navigate through, especially when designers place themselves in a position of not being the expert, but instead the people that are able to synthesise all these disparate ideas and values. If you can remain optimistic 
about the possibilities while always remaining really sceptical about the givens. But all wasn't lost. Um, that group of people went on to become ODASA, the Office for Design and Architecture in South Australia. And in part, that work from 5,000 plus um, led to the ability for the government to then announce a $1 million international design competition for a really significant site in South Australia where the old Royal Adelaide Hospital, which was moving up the road to a, to a new premises. Um, at the beginning of the process, uh, there was two really strongly held beliefs about that particular site. One was that it should, return, should remain as a hospital. We shouldn't be spending public money on a new hospital at all. Um, and the other one was that it should return to the parklands, what it originally was, and was in original agreement of Colonel Light's plan that I showed you before. Of course, neither of these were particularly feasible because who was possibly going to fund you know, it being pulled down and returned to nothing? Or to something, the parklands. Um, so the RA competition... Um, was actually a platform for discussion about that particular tension and about the future development of the site. But it used design as the subject to have the debate about rather than the actual contentious site itself. And again, we've employed or deployed all the design tools that we have in our um, toolkit. Um, in this instance, a good old-fashioned model. Um, and the reason why this model was really successful is because the minister could pick bits up like Lego and he could feel like God and he could move stuff around. And it was, he kept on coming in and playing with this um, model, which was a little bit strange, but um, he, he really loved it. And we were able to use that to test different design ideas. And then the competition that we had over 100 entrants for actually created the material that then underpinned that great conversation that we were able to have with the community. Again, we came to understand about the site that what the real actual values were and what we heard from the community was that they really valued the heritage on the site. That's Brainer, it's Adelaide. They also were interested in the desire for it to connect with the parklands that surround it. But we also discovered that this smart community um, really wanted to, to um, whatever happened on the site, to underpin the um, existing East End Precinct, which is much loved in South Australia, which is directly adjacent to it. They recognise if you move 3,000 nurses and doctors and patients and visitors out of this site, what would happen to this, this um, um, great area adjacent to it. So you couldn't return it to parklands because it would result in the, you know, in a, the death of part of the city. Um, around the same time, government departments, particularly federal government departments, Oh, sorry, I should point out that um, the concluding conversation of that RA design competition, and again, it's probably subject to a whole presentation, but what we found and what was sort of made the front page of the paper when we finished the project was a really simple move, and the simple move was that people began to understand that the, the future development site could be lots of different things. It was six hectares. It could be parklands. It could be development site. It could be housing. You know, it could even still be some hospital um, facilities. It was so large and that people became to understand, came to understand that it was okay. It was all right. We don't need to protect it. We can actually develop it. Um, and the, the actual development's now out for community consultation. And there's still, you know, contentious. It's still contentious. It's not that it's... Um, resolved through the design competition, but it gave a very easy platform for then um, the development to be talked about because people understood about the, more about the site than they did at the start. So as I mentioned, um, around that same time, a few years back, um, the federal government was discovering the value of design. They discovered that not only could they now reach their customers, um, they could also sort of you know, co-design and double diamond their way out of pretty much any solution that they needed. Um, 
and to provide more cost-effective solutions. So people like the Immigration Department I did some work for, um, great, great group of people, they hadn't really heard of design before and they certainly hadn't heard of a designer who might have some solutions for them. Um, at that point, I was also shifted into leading some of the training of executives in the South Australian government in design processes and in innovative work, um, ways of working. Again, this is where that Chandler thing comes in. When I tried to explain to people, that's what I did. Um, um, and at the time, my Bible was this book, The Recipes for Systematic Change from the Helsinki Design Lab. It was like my go-to of how to do this sort of stuff. If you haven't got a copy of it, I'm sure a few of you had, have, go and find it. You might need to go to a second-hand store, though. I don't think they print it anymore. Um, so at the time, South Australia was also leading the way in some initiatives that can begin to involve citizens in government decision-making. And our Premier, Jay Weatherall, um, is quite a progressive leader in deliberative democracy and better citizen engagement. Um, there are plenty of different projects and initiatives. There's these participatory budgeting projects. We do them quite well, where we ask the community to actually vote on their improvement projects. They actually propose the projects as well. Um, we've been running that for quite a long time. We put quite big budgets into it, so they're looking at you know, spending $40 million on this next one. Um, we've also done quite a lot of citizens' juries where we actually ask um, uh, a random selection of the um, community to make decisions on key issues, including our recent nuclear um, debate, um, which resulted in a no, um, which is, for some people, not surprising. Um, and other community collaboration um, initiatives like the sharing economy. So while this is, a really, this is a really great time and quite extraordinary things are happening, um, it's really just biting around the edges of a system of democracy um, that seems to be failing very rapidly around us. Um, I think there's a trust issue that these initiatives um, aren't subject to um, being infiltrated by um, particular lobby groups or um, uh, interest groups, that they're not transparent enough as well. The people that are ultimately making the decisions are still government. And also there's a fear, and I just experienced this, when you sign up to one of them all of a sudden you start getting government emails about other things that they're doing that are completely irrelevant and you might not care about. So the very worst thing you can you know, end up on some sort of database. And of course our friend Buckminster Fuller said that you can't actually change things by fighting the existing reality. You really need to um, create something new and a new model that actually makes that existing model obsolete. So that was my thinking at the time, and I was encouraged when the South Australian government put out this new policy um, called Reforming Democracy. The Premier genuinely wanted a public conversation about a new model of democracy, and I was asked to help as being the inaugural curator of a festival of democracy. Um, so the cabinet look, note looked like this, and don't read it, it's as boring as toast. Um, but what it actually said in there is that we were going to host this event in 2016 and we were going to have a statewide conversation about how to get better, how to reform democracy. Woohoo! So to me, this is what the festival looked like. Unfortunately, the media thought it looked like the Premier in a toga. Um, and that sort of whole, again, code of ethics and never really embarrassing your boss. Well, we did it pretty royally in the first five minutes of the project. Um, so we ended up calling it Open State instead. The title's a little less controversial. Um, but I can say that um, it's still a pretty large claim and aspiration to want to be an open state. Um, so I recognise as well that part of the festival's success last year was actually because um, of the world context. 
So when the Premier conceived for the idea of a festival of democracy, um, world events like Trump and Brexit hadn't actually played out yet. So by the time we actually got to the day of the festival and the 10 days of the festival, um, it kind of went viral because Australia was the first off the blocks to have a really, com you know, a very public conversation about what's wrong with this picture. Um, we had 65 events over 10 days. There was conferences and crowdfunding campaigns and awards and challenges. Um, there was speakers and new ideas. Um, we heard from others across the world. And this woman, Shari Davis, was really interesting. In Boston, they're actually doing a... Um, um, a annual, their budget allocation for their entire annual budget of um, that um, Boston area is given over to a participatory budgeting um, um, opportunity for young people. So they actually get people who are 18 to 25 to vote on how they should actually spend their money wisely, which I think is just wonderful. Um, so just for, like 5,000 plus, it was really about who was in the room. And visibility cannot be under, underrated in this situation. The more people that are involved, the more um, uh, kudos it gives the actual project. And we certainly had that. So it reached all of its key objectives really quickly. It had um, uh, about 25,000 people showed up over the 10 days. It had lots of events, had 18 you know, 19 million Twitter impressions, um, and it, that was a bit of a no-brainer. No um, but the real news was in the bottom right-hand corner of that slide. What we decided to do, because, you know, governments love numbers, um, what we decided to do early on was use a program called Buzz Numbers. Not sure if you've heard it or not. And what we did is we rated all of the social media and printed media um, that came out during those 10 days. And we rated how people were talking about the festival. We used, we used positive words and negative words to be able to work out what, what the sentiment was. And of course, um, it actually was quite extraordinary. There was 75% positive sentiment and 24.9% um, of neutral sentiment. And of course, this was music to the politicians' ears because they could treat it like a campaign. They understood that. You know, numbers are one thing, but when you actually say that it was really positive and this is how people reacted to it, that gave us a huge opportunity to do it again um, and really understood that there was a desire to have that particular conversation in the first place. Um, don't all run out and run, you know, use buzz numbers. It was a little bit clunky, and I've got to say that um, you probably won't see that published anywhere uh, because there was also a little bit of anxiety about publishing that sort of information um, from, the, from the government. So um, for me, one of the most interesting um, speakers at the, at the festival was Pia Mancini, and that's her in the middle. She's from Argentina. She's got a quite um, famous TED talk titled How to Upgrade Democracy for the Internet Era. She talks about being a 21st century, or us being 21st century citizens in a 19th, you know, working with 19th century institutions based on 15th century information technology. We all recognise that democracy was designed at a time when there was a printing press and that representative government was formed because we had no way of being in contact with each other all the time about all the issues. And that today, voting every four years is kind of the equivalent of an emoji. You know, that's how, that's how quick it is. She talks about a new model for democracy that effectively designs a browser over the top of government. She started, she wanted to, to disrupt it from within, so she started her own political party 
called the net party and she quickly learned that the system was really just designed to push people away and failed fairly dramatically. She then started um, uh, Democracy OS. And Democracy Open Source is an online space for deliberation and voting on political proposals. And it's a platform for a more open and more participatory government. The software aims to stimulate better arguments and come to better rulings as peers, of course. Um, she uses blockchain and open source technology to protect free speech and privacy, which was all those problems of those other in, um, initiatives that I talked about before. And another example of this that takes a little bit further is Brussels Together. Um, in this particular one, the reason why this is a fantastic um, process for bus Brussels is that you actually have to invest in it, literally. You put in £100 of your own money or euros of your own money every year and then that's pulled and then that money is decided on by you. Or you can delegate the decision-making to someone that you already trust and that's usually not a politician. That's usually and oftentimes the expert or the neighbour or someone that you just know that might have a better idea than you do about that particular topic. And it's working extraordinarily well. And then this one's currently being developed, it's not there yet, and it's called Democracy Earth. Um, it removes that political intermediation entirely and employs a more fluid peer-to-peer -peer democracy and they do participatory budgeting with Bitcoin uh, and they call it liquid democracy for a post-nation state. Um, you can vote on issues that you care about and delegate to those that you already trust again, um, but on a completely new platform. So my uh, reading list is on the bedside table has changed a little bit um, these days and I'm very interested in designing strategies to support dialogue um, as well as the shift from holding opinions to making judgments and that's a really important distinction. Um, I believe that it's entirely rational and possible for someone to personally hold a negative view about same-sex marriage but also, at the same time, recognise that the legislation is discriminatory and they don't personally believe in discriminating against minority groups and therefore might make the decision that tick yes, absolutely will want this to happen. Might not even affect them. So complex discussions can't be solved by binary yes or no questions. And we can see this playing out right now. So to get back on track um, and to kind of sum all this up for you, um, I've learnt quite a lot about working for my time in government. I'm not there anymore, so I can speak a little bit more freely about it. Um, what I learnt was that uh, mostly what gets measured actually matters. And we measure things in different ways. This scene in Adelaide is entirely acceptable if you're measuring, say, um, you know, the number of dwellings, uh, access to emergency services, traffic congestion maybe, um, access to parking, and the rollout of the NBN in the, um, on the asphalt there. Of course, this would be far less acceptable if you're actually measuring social connectivity, uh, the quality of the built environment, and certainly climate change adaption. And then conversely, from this scene at the town hall in Adelaide, as it currently looks. So I'm going to quickly demonstrate um, this further by looking um, a little bit closer at the tools that we actually use to measure um, cities. 
um, by talking about two particular cities that I'm fond of, one Adelaide and the other one being Dhaka in Bangladesh where my sister-in-law lives with her family and has done for the last 10 years. So the Economic Intelligence Unit is really the ranking of cities that we see the most, we use it, we see it in the newspaper. The EIU is also used for funding. So this is where we actually deploy funds from um, the World Health Organization and other world units that actually um, says, well, you need a bit of help in this particular area. So this is primarily where decisions, decisions come from, is this um, economic intelligence unit. Adelaide comes fifth, of course, um, and always kind of sits in that top ten, as does Melbourne and Sydney. Unfortunately, Dhaka comes 140th out of, you guessed, 140 cities that they actually rank. And it measures things like um, GDP, crime, access to health and all those really important things, and infrastructure. So places like Adelaide where we've got you know, great speedy streets is really rated quite highly, but Bangladesh has a little bit more trouble with their, um, with their communications and infrastructure. However, on the Happy Planet Index, which is another ranking tool that we often use, Dhaka, or Bangladesh, comes 11th. And guess what? Adelaide comes right down there at 102nd. And the reason why that is is because it adds a few different rankings to that measurement. It measures as well life expectancy and most importantly it measures how you feel about yourself. About, and they call this the ladder of life. About how you're experiencing wellness and how you're experiencing your particular um, well-being. And also talks about ecological footprint and the like. So this is, um, there's many other ranking metrics. Um, and this is a particularly nifty one. The OECD has been doing this um, thing for a few years now um, um, called the Better Life Index. Um, and the reason why I like it is because it's got a nifty interactive tool in it so that you can actually um, go online um, and look at in finer detail about who's ranking well in which particular area. So you can, you know, for example, if you clicked on Australia and you took away... Um, education and um, health, which are our two highest ranking, we slip down below Greece almost immediately. So you can see how you know, fine we are between you know, better, better life or not. There's also this vitality index in states, which I think is brilliant, which actually starts to um, uh, measure uh, creativity as into the health of a city. And then another favourite of mine is the Green Cities Index. This is a European one. We have one in Australia now as well. And then there's the hipster metric of Monocle. And believe it or not, a lot of people, including me, have made decisions about where they want to live and where they want to travel based on uh, Monocle. And then there's the media and how we talk about ourselves and you know, social media, obviously. Um, South Australia has, like most states, has a dedicated bureau that writes positive articles about South Australia. You only have to sort of go on to you know, pick up a Qantas magazine and realise how paid for you know, our, our um, media is. And Vancouver, again back to my, one of my great cities, um, always ranks very highly in the um, Green Cities Index. And it's, you know, it's great on lots of different um, fronts, except for transport apparently. Um, but they've gone a little bit too far and unfortunately they've dropped off the other side of the ranking that I consider important. And now Vancouver is actually called a no-fun city because it isn't very fun. They've taken away a lot of the um, late-night licences, live bands, um, um, and there's even dedicated websites talking about how shit Vancouver is now, which is quite disappointing, really, because it was such a great city. So what I want to um, uh, quickly address is whether we're actually measuring the right things, and certainly um, GDP may not be the right thing. 
So I want to propose a different KPI for how we might measure things. What if we actually, this is Adelaide of course, what if we measured the health of our city by the number of platypus that were in the River Torrens? It's been proposed a few times to have a pool in the River Torrens and if you've ever been near the River Torrens, you really wouldn't want to go in there. In fact, someone actually let go of the lever the other day to the weir and discovered more than one car in the bottom of the River Torrens. The second KPI that we could measure cities by was imagine if a bee only had to travel no more than 20 metres for a food source. And maybe we had wildlife corridors that actually were more important or just as important as the, the um, arterial roads that, came, that slice through our parklands. Maybe our cities would look a little bit more like Vancouver, and that's my daughter over there. Um, and this is in a, in, a, in a suburb of Vancouver. And what about if we measured the performance of cities by the urban heat island effect? If we're actually aiming for zero, then maybe our cities would look a little bit more like this. So as we're faced with some pretty big decisions and very complex decisions about our future, particularly this one, like how are we going to fit 20 more cities the size of Adelaide into Australia in only the next few years, while maintaining our quality of life, mind you? Um, I believe that the answer actually lies in involving our citizens more in decision making um, and that we value what the things that they care about and we employ the, design, uh, the tools of designers to help lead the way. So I'm going to leave you with some things to consider over the next couple of days and beyond, hopefully, um, about what I'm learning, I hope it's learnt. One is that the future of leadership is really open sourced. Um, Know what you're measuring, be less opinionated and more judgmental, have more open-minded conversations, remain tactically flexible and most importantly explore all those hunches that you have or may find over the next couple of days. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Yorks Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au.